Welcome to the Littler Artificial Intelligence Robotics and Data Podcast. Conversations about employers integrating robotics, AI systems, big data, and analytics into their workplaces in the United States and worldwide. This is Natalie Pierce. I co-chair Littler's Robotics, Artificial Intelligence, and Automation Practice Group. And I'm very thrilled to be here today with Deborah Kadner. She is a machine learning expert and also an entrepreneur and someone who I've had the great pleasure of collaborating with. So welcome to this podcast, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we really get started here, can you just give our listeners a little bit of your background? Sure. So I am co-founder and head of product for Escalera, which is an employee experience platform focused on employee engagement, measuring culture, and talent development. Well, how did I get here? I have a long history of doing data integration and looking at uh, integrating multiple data systems and disparate sources for driving decision analysis. And I've done this in logistics with general supply and demand chain for pricing systems, for sales and marketing. And HR seemed to be the last frontier for applying a lot of these data-driven techniques when we think about machine learning and AI and data science. And this is really for a couple of reasons. One is when we think about the workforce, the tools that are out there today have been more compliance-based and not around productivity and growth. And we're seeing that shift today. And then also with the changes that are happening in the workforce with the low unemployment rate and the low retention rate where uh, millennials are staying to average of 2.6 years. And also with the onset of AI and automation, the need for reskilling and new talent development and workforce planning to really leverage all that data in a more interesting and holistic way. Yeah, you know, human resources, people and talent leaders are definitely going to have their work cut out for them in this coming decade. Just by 2025, we can expect to see one in every three existing jobs performed by software robots and smart machines. And what we also expect to see, as it has been with past workplace revolutions, is new job creation. Some predicting that there will be many more jobs created than lost due to automation. Within the next five years, we can expect to see increased displacement, especially in the industries of office support, food service, transportation, logistics, and customer service roles, according to a McKinsey Global Institute report. At the same time, new jobs will be created in the STEM field, business services, and work requiring greater creativity, collaboration, and personal interaction. So we're going to be looking at a framework for helping employers build their workforces for the future. The concept of this podcast really builds off a meeting Deborah and I recently had with a Fortune 500 company who is looking to better understand ways to keep pace with the impact of transformative technologies and also builds off a piece that I co-authored this summer with Rick Hayfornthwaite, chairman of MasterCard and also chairman of an AI company, QIO, which was on the subject of AI, robotics, reskilling, and ethics and board imperatives in the fourth revolution. For that piece, we asked the co-founder of the Stanford Center for Corporate Governance, Dan Siciliano, to opine on the board's imperatives. And 
He's quoted in the piece as warning that a board that fails to engage with management on matters of AI and robotics is not only breaching fundamental fiduciary duties, but also repeating a terrible mistake from the early days of electrification. At that time, many assumed that the much-hyped technology was just for replacing lights and hence missed the reality that it would reshape commerce, culture, and consumerism across the entire globe. And that's certainly true. And what's also true is that the impact that robotics and artificial intelligence are going to have on commerce, culture, consumerism across the entire globe are even more profound and, and, and will happen, you know, we believe, at a, at a faster rate. We have a real skills mismatch when it comes to job supply and demand. According to a recent World Economic Forum report, by 2022, no less than 54% of all employees will require significant re- and upskilling. So let's talk more about this. Deborah, I know you're just back from the annual HR Technology Conference. What are some of the main themes around AI and reskilling that you are hearing? Oh, well, AI was definitely a hot topic, as was the new skills needed, not just for HR practitioners who really need to support the future of work, but also the skills that are becoming more important as the entire workforce and the nature of work is changing. So, for example, when you think about how HR is changing, is they're looking at systems that are not just seeing people in hierarchies but are working within teams and how can we use data and analytics to understand and measure team performance. There's also a lot more talk about pulling in more real-time data sources and that really elevates the role of the HR practitioner from fact gatherer to a sense maker. And underpinning all of this is the acknowledgement that all of their data and processes have to change. So no longer do we have annual review processes but continual feedback. There's a higher emphasis on soft skills and collaboration, especially as a lot of the tasks are becoming automated with machines. And this is seen everywhere from candidate assessment stage, which I know you've talked about before, all the way through workforce planning and promotion cycles. And this is all just with an eye towards HR. And I know, Natalie, you're seeing a lot more examples from legal and ethics and finance. So where are you seeing companies getting stuck? Well, I think stuck is definitely the right word. And I, and I, you know, just to back up, I think the reason that people are feeling like they're getting stuck is because we really don't have oftentimes a good or the right framework for getting started to begin with. Also, you see companies getting stuck around not fully understanding the opportunities that automation can bring. And then even when you do sort of identify those opportunities, there's all sorts of new concerns around the legal and sometimes ethical questions associated with adoption. So often these days, myself and, and others, we find ourselves in a room full of representatives from logistics, legal, and HR, everyone interested in topics around automation and reskilling and impact on the workforce, but again, not knowing the best way to get started. And, and that's a big part of why we are here today doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Things are moving so fast, and there's so many nuances to consider when there's all the stakeholders that are involved. And this is where we really wanted to come up with an, a framework or an approach that companies can take as they thought through their AI and automation strategies and the impact on the workforce. And it's important to think about AI and automation and the reskilling are really two sides to the same coin. 
and they both must be considered together. And also, given the vast change that will be happening in the workforce, it's also very important to be mindful about the culture and the employee engagement as you're doing any type of change management. So true. So let's start by walking people through the framework that we've developed, our future workforce launchpad. First thing we identified in this framework is initial assessment and goal setting. So what do we mean by that? The overall project starts with an assessment of what the company aims to achieve with automation and understanding organizational goals. So answering questions like, what was the impetus for incorporating automation into the workforce? The answer will, of course, vary depending on a number of factors, including your industry and the specific business needs of your company. But some examples might be streamlining product delivery, reducing workforce hazards, increasing talent retention, expanding into new markets, or operating with a limited labor force. Next, we work to outline the company's targets and map your AI and automation initiatives to these goals. Now, once you have the initiatives and the goals in mind, it's important to think about the workforce analysis and position development that you need to support this. So, for example, you should understand which departments and which groups are going to be impacted by these new problems and make sure that you identify the right project liaisons and champions for success as you roll out automation. And when thinking about how plans for our AI and automation will affect the business, it can be very industry specific. There are some verticals that we're working with, such as manufacturing and retail and customer service, like you mentioned before, who really understand the need to bring more digital dexterity into their workforce. And so the reskilling and upskilling of line operators, and store managers, and service agents is pretty well understood. But then there are other verticals who are aware that change will come, but it is unclear in how they're going to be impacted. And those companies and verticals are really more interested in measuring the growth mindset and agility of their workforce and their current managers. So they can understand who those liaisons and champions should be in the first rollout of any changes and really bring them forward in the workplace. And across the board, as automated processes take on all the transactional repeatable tasks, workers can now shift their focus to higher order work that rely on communication and collaboration, design and innovation. Yeah, yeah, and that segues nicely and goes hand in hand with the next step in this framework we've developed, which is to look at evaluation of programs and tools. So it's really critical to evaluate existing programs as well as identify and assess the new initiatives needed to automate and reskill the workforce. So we help identify opportunities for the introduction of advancing technologies to facilitate adoption. One example could be the introduction of collaborative robotics in conjunction with pick-to-cart facilities by reducing factory floor travel time, or to support workers with repetitive tasks required in industries like food processing. Another instance might be use of telepresence or telemanipulation for healthcare-related work. Also, exoskeletons and exosuits can be employed to support manual labor tasks in more labor-intensive environments. It could also be in connection with automation of knowledge-based services to which we see tasks being impacted. And next, 
We identify and prioritize the occupations requiring reskilling or upskilling. We evaluate current HR programs and processes on their ability to support the organization's objectives. As part of that, we're going to work to revisit historical job categories and skill classification systems as they may be insufficient in capturing the requirements of a company's future workforce. What comes next, Deborah? Finally, based on the identified strategic goals, it's important to establish a baseline so that you can measure the effectiveness and ROI of the program. And as we're dealing with an entire workforce, it's more involved than just the typical sales or financial metrics, meaning there's going to be direct and indirect components to this. And I'm thinking back to the work that we undertook with our advisor, Rebecca Diamond, who's a professor of economics at Stanford University, as we thought around the ROI of increased workplace inclusion. It does have both direct and indirect components, and it really comes down to thinking about retention, productivity, reputation to the company, and innovation. Now, as you think about the impacts of automation on a workforce, it really spans at least those categories as well as others. So when you're reducing repetitive work through automation and investing in reskilling the workforce, it can have impacts on health and wellness, employee engagement and retention, which then in turn impacts productivity and innovation. And all of those can have a lasting effect on a company's long-term health. So Deborah, I want to kind of delve in and take advantage of your machine learning background. And as somebody who's actually developed some of these tools that employers are looking at and then coming to our data analytics team sort of analyze and break down and ask, can we, can we trust it? How do we trust it? From that point of view, what things are companies like yours doing to kind of give employers a greater level of confidence? There's really there's a twofold answer to that. One is on data governance, and two is understanding ways in which bias can be removed from the models. So on the data governance side, it's extremely important that we think about employee data and privacy first and foremost. And so as employees are putting forth their current skills and abilities and competencies and aspirations, they should be able to raise their hand about whether they want that to be known or whether just aggregated and de-identified data can be made available, both of which can be valuable to an employer. An employer can then, in turn, look and see pockets where they could have potential upskill opportunities and pockets where they have people with high growth mindset and agility, for example, and those are the pockets that should be trained, especially as the workforce is changing. Now, if an employee wants to raise their hand and be forthcoming with the information, that just gives more information to the employer. And then the employee can have a very interesting, personalized learning path and career pathway forward. The second side to that is thinking about how we develop models that take in all the disparate data signals and de-bias what we can so that we're not just predicting based on what we've historically done for hiring and promotion, which is looking at where people went to school and what last job they had. But what are the true attributes that indicate success? And how do we understand and accommodate for any bias or barriers to upward mobility that may have been in the workplace? And that's where I get really excited. Uh, as you can imagine, women in technology for 25 years, what my career path has been. It's not always sure. been a, a walk in the park. Uh, and I'm really excited to be able to remove some of those barriers to mobility, especially as we're thinking about reskilling the workforce in the coming days. Yeah, and I think you know, a big part of that is 
really the missed opportunities, right? So by using tools like this to sort of identify who has the skill sets and matching those skill sets with the jobs of the future, you know, half of which don't exist right now, we really can, I think organizations can and will surprise themselves. And, and so that's a little bit along the lines of what we've also discussed about the need for having a head of skills or a chief skills officer. Deborah, let's talk about what skills an ideal chief skills officer might possess. So backing up a little bit, you do talk about the supply and demand problem. And it is matching supply and demand, which other industries have been doing for decades. What's interesting about this is the matching of supply and demand is moving away from just looking at a job title and really looking at those underlying skills and attributes. And those underlying skills and attributes are more robust than what they had been before. It's because you can learn different hard skills, but it's the communication and collaboration that really helps you work better in teams and also helps you move up a management track as well. So to your question about a chief skills officer, first, analytically driven because they will be looking at uh, all this information that we can bring in through the different data sources to understand where the pockets of skills and aptitudes and agility and stroke growth mindset do lie within an organization. But there's always going to be an art to it as well. And it's looking at making sure that you have a set of robust data and, and enough context to tell the story and to make the case, and then be nimble enough to shift as things change in the, in the data stream. Yeah, I think that's right, and we're going to want someone who not only sees what's possible and what's coming, but can maybe help identify those early influencers who we're really going to need to keep up employee morale, uh, participate with things like having good communications with employees. And that's something I think is part of this whole process. We do help come up with the communication strategies, we encourage transparency. And you'd want your chief skills officer to really be identifying the people who can participate in things like pilot programs of using exoskeletons to decrease incidence of repetitive injuries, or who are happy to adopt the collaborative robot coworker who they can learn to program and collaborate with to increase productivity. Another example might be identifying people for nano degrees who would embrace the opportunity to learn in that type of agile environment. Workers often jump at opportunities to upskill and grab new jobs within their organizations. And it's important to note that companies don't have to start with everything all at once. And there could be projects or they could be a particular plant or they could be a, a group of innovations department that it would be helpful to start there and in thinking about putting together those liaisons and champions to work through a small pilot program on whether it's something uh, on adopting robotics in the workforce, as you said, or thinking about having more diverse set of skills on an innovation team to think about new product development as markets are changing so quickly. Great. I think that's exactly right. So Deborah, now that we've discussed this concept of head of skills or chief skills officer, 
which is something that perhaps comes a little later in the process. How about at that initial meeting? Let's talk about who we want ideally at that meeting. What kinds of stakeholders or decision makers would we encourage companies to bring to the table? It will depend slightly on the industry vertical, I would imagine, but somebody in finance, somebody in technology, somebody in HR, um, maybe several people because learning and development will have a component there, especially if we're talking about instituting a new role for a chief skills officer, and ethics and legal as well through the topics that you've been talking through. And I think with the first assessment, it's really understanding where some of the low-hanging fruit and the opportunities are for this particular company and giving guidance as to what information to gather so that at the second session we can help proactively walk through the plan, what should be accomplished within three months, six months, nine months, a year, and what are the goals for the first year and for three and five years down the road. The idea is to really design a pilot program that can be done in a shorter amount of time that's more encapsulated, but where the baseline metrics can be measured easily and so ROI can be understood. And then through the learnings from that process to then have a rollout plan into other groups. Whether adjustments are needed or not, those are the lessons we'll learn through the pilot, but that will give us a great way to gain some insight and get those internal champions to move forward. Exactly. And I think what really encouraged us and has us so excited about this initiative is that we've seen this done very successfully by many corporations, and the common denominator really is how thoughtful and intentional the planning was. And we've seen organizations who have been able to turn around parts of their operations and become more productive, see greater revenues, and all this despite the reskilling, which we know can be very disruptive. Right. Just like with data projects that I've worked on, a lot of companies will get hung up on needing perfect, clean data from the get-go. And with today's techniques, you don't need a perfect set of data. It doesn't have to be perfectly clean. We can start learning on a smaller test set, and then the models will adjust and improve over time. And the same goes with any business process as well. All right. I think this is a great place for us to conclude this podcast. Deborah, really thank you for being here. And if listeners want to learn more about our Littler Robotics and AI Practice Group, you can certainly go to www.littler.com and find our AI and Robotics Practice page. And if you are interested in learning more about future Workforce Launchpad, please send an email to futureworkforce at littler.com. Thanks again for being here, Deborah. Thank you so much. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.